0: About 20 years ago, give or take, my cousin had what I would call his most disappointing Christmas ever. So, my aunt and uncle had recently moved to Colorado, and it was a new environment. So, they decided they were going to make a really big deal of Christmas that year, and they really emphasized Santa Claus. So, they asked my cousin, What do you want for Christmas? He told my aunt and uncle, I want. A British Harrier jump jet for Christmas. He didn't mean a little model or a little toy. No, he actually wanted, and he convinced himself that he wanted, a $30 million airplane for Christmas. But it gets better than that. He wrote letters to Santa, many, many, many letters. He called, there was a phone number that you could call Santa. He called Santa on the phone. Every time they went to the mall, he sat on Santa's lap and he told Santa, he wanted a $30 million Harrier jump jet for Christmas. Well, he also managed to convince himself that this was not just a realistic request, it was all but guaranteed. So Christmas Eve, we were sitting in the living room in my grandma's house, and we had a method that we went about doing gifts on Christmas Eve. You see, we would start at the oldest, my grandma would unwrap a present, and we work our way down to the youngest, and my cousin would be the last to unwrap a present. And we did this until there were no more presents left under the tree. And as the present pile shrank, the excitement built in my cousin, because he knew that we were going to save that Harrier jump jet for last. And the excitement built, the tension built, the present pile narrowed, and finally we were down to one last Small, shoebox-sized present. And we asked my cousin, what do you think it is? It's my jet! He began unwrapping the present, and the tears began to flow. As he realized that the Fisher-Price fishing pole was not the jet, he threw it to the ground and said, it's a stupid baby toy. It was a disappointing Christmas, Because he didn't have realistic expectations. He didn't have the correct desires. He was part of a culture that was crippled. So what we're going to see in our Bibles is we're going to turn to Mark 10. If you'll turn to Mark 10 with me. Because I think that sometimes as we follow Jesus, we have problems where we get disappointed. Think about it this week. Have you been offended by something? Have you been upset by something? Have you been disgusted as you watched the news? Have you been frustrated? I think for all of us, the answer is probably yes, at one point or another. Because we live in a fallen world. What we're going to see in Mark 10 is we're going to see a contrast. We're going to see a contrast between the world's view... Of jockeying position, and the kingdom of heaven's view of serving and putting service before self. So, I'm gonna show you three problems in this passage, three areas where the disciples misunderstood Jesus. First of all, they had erroneous expectations, they had defective desires, and finally, they had bought into a crippled culture. So we're going to look at Mark 10, and I hope that you're there. Before I actually read from you from Mark 10, I want to first point out that Mark 8 comes before Mark 10. That's some, some depth there, right? But in Mark 8, in Mark 8, Peter proclaims to Jesus, You are the Messiah, the King of Israel. This is the moment in Mark. Mark is probably writing the gospel from Peter's perspective. Probably John Mark is writing what Peter told him. And Jesus has this great moment where the disciples recognize you are the Messiah. It is huge. Then when we get to Mark 11, we have the triumphal entry as Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king. But in between Mark 8 and Mark 11, Jesus says something three times. He says, I'm going to die. Between Mark 8 and Mark 11, Jesus predicts his death three times. And that's where we're going to pick this up so that we can understand Jesus. So I'm going to start with verses 32 through 34. In your Bibles, Mark 10, starting with verse 32. It says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. He will rise, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. What I see when I read this passage is I see erroneous expectations. The passage begins with the disciples having erroneous expectations. You see, contrary to the disciples' expectations, the king of creation came to suffer and die. Contrary to what they expected, Jesus came to suffer and to die. In verse 32 we see Jesus leading the way up to Jerusalem. I see a contrast here between what I normally see in the Gospels. Normally in the Gospels, I get a picture of Jesus with the crowd. And they may be walking from one village to the next, but the picture that I have in my mind is Jesus is walking and teaching, and it's a casual pace, the sort of pace that I would struggle because I like to get places. But that's the picture I have of Jesus normally in the Gospels. Here it's different. We see Jesus leading the way. I see him steadfastly setting his vision on Jerusalem. He is on the way. He is leading the crowd. And I think that the disciples noticed this difference. And I think the disciples thought to themselves, this is it. We've been waiting for the Messiah to overthrow Rome. We've been waiting to go on this march to war. Finally, Jesus is going to do what we thought he would do all along. He's going to conquer the Roman Empire. He's going to set himself up as king over Jerusalem, and we're going to be there. And so we see the disciples are astonished. This is it. Others are afraid because war is never pretty. But they see him heading straight to Jerusalem, and they're excited. But the reality of the situation was not that Jesus was marching to Jerusalem to go to war. The reality was that the world had already rejected Jesus. And the plan of God was for Jesus to suffer. The plan of God was for Jesus ultimately to die and then to rise again victorious. What we see here is in verse 33 it says the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. That's a very passive phrasing, will be delivered. It's what linguists and theologians call a divine passive. God the Father in complete control is going to hand Jesus over to be killed, to be mocked, to be spit on, eventually to rise again. But that only is going to come after his death. You see, the Messiah, Jesus, Jesus was not the Messiah that the disciples wanted. Jesus was the Messiah the disciples needed. The disciples wanted a conquering king. They got a dying savior. Not what they wanted, what they needed. So my question for you, in terms of expectations, do you accept the Jesus that you need? Or are you looking for the Jesus you want? Because Jesus is the suffering servant, the one who gives himself for you. Do you accept one who gives himself for you instead of who proclaims himself as the victor? Jesus was the savior that the disciples needed. So they had wrong expectations. But they also had defective desires. We're going to look at verses 35 through 40, and we're going to look at their defective desires. That is, contrary to the disciples' desires, the teacher and his disciples would suffer. Contrary to their desires, the teacher and his disciples would suffer. Let's look at verses 35 through 40. Then, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever you ask, whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink of the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In order to really understand this, we need to remember, recall, who exactly James and John were. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there are three disciples that had a place of privilege. They got to be present for significant events. Starting in Mark 5, Peter, James, and John got to be present when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were the only three that got to be in the room for that. On the mount, in the transfiguration, in Mark 9, three people got to go up on the mountain with Jesus and witness his transfiguration. Again, Peter, James, and John. So James and John, they're pretty significant people in the Gospels. They're pretty important. And I think they get this in their mind because they decide they're going to go ask Jesus for something. And the first first request I think is funny because it reminds me of something that a child would do. They ask for a blank check. They say, we've got a question for you. Will you do anything we ask you to do? Do for us whatever it is that we want. Whatever it is we ask. Jesus obviously doesn't fall for it. He says, you have to be specific. What is it that you want? And notice what they ask for. They ask that they would sit at his right and at his left. ...in his glory. On one level, this is actually a step of faith. Because they're they're saying, we know that you're going to have glory, we want to be there for it. But it is amongst the most selfish steps that they could have possibly taken. Because they've left off the other twelve. But more than leaving off the other twelve, they've left Peter completely out of the picture. The one who was there with him for these events. They are making a power play. They have a defective desire for power, authority, for their own personal glory. I think that the taste of Christ's glory that they got at the transformation made them hope for some for themselves. They wanted some glory for themselves. Jesus' response is really interesting. First of all, he says, you don't know what you're asking for says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? I don't think we can read this passage and not at least get a little picture, a little idea of the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are ordinances where we identify with Christ. When you identify with Christ, you must identify, though, with his suffering. That's the idea of identifying with Christ. Is we identify ourselves as sinners who Christ suffered for, died for, to give us salvation. But the picture here is more than just the ordinances. I think that there's some wordplay going on here. When the term cup is used in the Bible, there are a couple of occasions where the idea of the cup is an idea of blessing. Uh, Psalm 16.5 is one such example. But for the most part, the cup is a picture of God's judgment and God's wrath. I think what Jesus is saying is, can you partake in the judgment and wrath that God is going to pour out on me on your behalf? In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, if this cup can depart from me, nevertheless, your will be done. The idea of the cup is the idea of God's wrath, his judgment being poured out on sin. Baptism is the other thing. Jesus says, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The word for baptism, baptizo, is to submerse something. I think the idea here is Jesus would shortly after this be swept away in death, be submersed completely in death. In fact, Jesus in Luke, Luke 12, 50 describes his suffering as a baptism, to be immersed in his suffering. Jesus is asking James and John, can you partake? Can you really handle what is coming? We know the answer. The answer is no, they couldn't. But they boldly say, yep, we're, we're there. They missed the point. Have you ever missed the point? I miss the point every once in a while. I was trying to think of examples of where I, where I miss the point. So here is a, a life lesson for some of you. If your wife ever asks you, do you think you're going to have any time to spend with me tonight? The answer is never no. You've missed the point. They disciples have missed the point. The point is not that we're going to march with you to Jerusalem. No, the point is Jesus is about to die. So the question that I've got for you is do you desire the things of Christ and his kingdom or do you focus on your self-glorification? James and John were so focused on their self-glorification, they missed the point. Jesus just literally in the previous paragraph said he was going to die. And James and John says, can we be with you in that? They've missed the point. We should focus on the things of Christ and his kingdom instead of our own glory. The next thing that I see in this passage is a crippled culture. A crippled culture. See, contrary to the disciples' culture, the culture that they were all part of, the Son of Man valued humble service, not proud positioning. The Son of Man valued humble service. Let's read verses 41 through 45. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. And said, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The culture of the world that we live in. The culture of the world that the disciples lived in said, do everything you can to get power. And once you get power, do everything you can to hold on to that power. Do everything you can to make a name for yourself. Do everything you can to have the financial and economic resources to make yourself happy. That's the culture that we have. It's a crippled culture. The culture of the world is one of grabbing and holding power with everything you have. The ten are upset. The NIV says they're indignant. They are livid. I actually don't know if they're as upset with James and John over what they did, or if they're upset with themselves over not having thought of it first. I can't believe I missed that. I should have asked Jesus for that. But they're upset. Jesus brings them all together. And he tells them, the rulers of the Gentiles get upset over this. This is not my model for the kingdom. Instead, he describes his model by saying, not so with you. He doesn't even say you should. He says, this is not how it is. This is stronger than just a imperative command. This is, this is not how this is supposed to be. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The recipe that Jesus gives us is a recipe whereby we serve. See, Jesus is our Savior. Absolutely. But he is also our model. He's our model for how he intended, how God intended life to be lived. God did not intend life to be lived as positioning oneself for power, for authority. That's not the model. God intended life to be lived, serving one another, giving oneself for one another, The Bible tells us no greater love than that a man should lay down his life for his friend. To give oneself completely for another. That's the model. We live in a culture where power is coveted. I was reading an article a few months ago. It was uh, about what's called title inflation. You may have seen something like this in your place of work. Where everybody wants a fancy title. In fact, a lot of startup companies have started to offer fancy titles instead of reasonable paychecks. It, it actually is a known problem that we've got vice-presidents of everything that make just a little bit of money, but then they can put that they were the vice-president of, you name it, on their resume, so that maybe one day they could get an even better position. It's title inflation, because the world is jockeying for position. And Jesus says, not so. In the kingdom of God, in my model for life, we serve each other. And then he gives the ultimate example of service. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The title, Son of Man, comes out of Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision And he describes seeing one like the Son of Man. And it talks about the glory of God descending. The Son of Man is the title that Jesus uses to describe not just himself as a human, but rather himself as the very Messiah, the glory of God. And we're supposed to imagine that, I think, when we read this title, Son of Man. This is not just an ordinary man. This is God himself. There's an emphasis on the glory and power. And look what it says. The son of man, the one who deserves all glory, who deserves all power, who deserves all worship, who deserves to be served, did not come to serve. Or sorry, did not come to be served, but to serve. The one who deserves to be served is the one who serves. That's Christ's model for life. In fact, he served to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is a noun form of the word redeem. To take that which is broken and to fix it. It starts with our life, with our sin in our life. Jesus fixes that. But it goes into every aspect of our life. Jesus came to not just redeem us, which he does. If you've accepted Jesus as your savior, he has redeemed you. But he came to redeem every aspect of this world. To fix that which is broken. To turn this crippled culture upside down. So the question I have for you is do you sacrificially serve in honor preferring one another? This is the model that Christ has. This Is how we live the life that Christ intends for us to have. This is how we find joy and fulfillment in life. I want to take a step back and go back to the story of the Harrier Jump Jet. You see, my cousin had what I think is the worst Christmas he probably will ever have. But why? First of all, he bought into a crippled culture that told him Christmas was all about getting a gift. And getting something. Second of all, he had a defective desire. Can you imagine had my four-year-old cousin actually gotten a jet for Christmas? It was a defective desire. And then he had an erroneous expectation. There was no way he was going to get this. But are we any different? When we go about life, we buy into a crippled culture where we start thinking about power dynamics and how can I take that next step we desire things that don't matter it's christ and his kingdom that matters and then we make expectations what should we expect to find joy in serving christ so my question for you to sort of close out who do you need to serve because the individual who seeks to follow Christ needs to set aside their desire for self-glorification and instead follow Christ in humble service. That's the model Christ has for us. That will find joy. That is how we can bring Christ's glory. That's my challenge to you. Set aside self-glorification. Look for ways to serve. That will model Christlikeness. likeness Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Christ. For the Savior of the world, the Son of Man, who deserved all power, all glory, but yet came not to be served, but rather to serve. And as we are in November... The stores have Christmas stuff out. It's coming. I pray that we would look for an opportunity not to receive, but rather to serve each other, knowing that your model for life, your desire for us, is to serve one another. And in serving one another, to grow to be more like Christ and to find the fulfillment, the satisfaction, and the joy. I thank you that Jesus came. I thank you that he died on the cross. I thank you that he lived a life that we can model. And I pray that you would challenge our hearts to live that life that Christ modeled for us. In Jesus' name, amen.